Do you upload photos or videos to the internet? Do you have an ISP? Do you like monkeys? Then you're going to want to join us on This Week in Law with Professor John Turanian, Cyber Lawyer Kevin Thompson, and Cyber Macaque Evan Brown next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 120, recorded July 15, 2011. Colorado Grandmothers for 200, Alex. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account for six months, go to squarespace.com and use offer code TWILL7. And by Netflix. With thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. Hey folks, you've tuned in for This Week in Law. I'm Denise Howell, and we've got a great panel of folks for you today and some really interesting stuff to talk about. With us is Professor John Terranian from Southwestern Law School. Hi, John. Hi, how are you? Doing great. Also joining us again on Twill is Kevin Thompson, the cyber lawyer. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Denise. Thanks so much for having me back on. Great to have you on. Also joining us once again is Evan Brown. Hello, Evan. Well, hello, hello, and happy Friday. It's great to be here as usual. Great to have you. So we've got all kinds of great stuff to discuss this week, and I'm hoping to sort of thread it all together. I can see common themes going through much of it. Let's start with music, since we had Spotify finally come to the U.S. this week. And uh, interesting sort of landscape out there in the cloud music arena right now, with Spotify having jumped through all the licensing hurdles, uh, despite its uh, past and the past of its founders in more of the uh, BitTorrent arena. And uh, we've got Amazon and Google, on the other hand, not having gone through any formal licensing process with the record labels, and Apple on the side of definitely getting their licensing ducks in a row and paying a bunch of upfront money. So we've got all these options out there. There's still questions about what's legal and what's not legal, and the case against MP3 tunes grinds along. Uh, John is the author of a really interesting book called Infringement Nation uh, that I encourage people to pick up. And a big theme of that book is how um, just your everyday life can involve a lot of copyright infringement. So I guess uh, uploading music to the cloud and playing it in other locations and on other devices falls into that kind of a category. John, uh, what's your take on all these cloud music services and where things stand right now? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the contrast we're seeing in the strategy between uh, what Apple is doing, which is going with the licensing model first and then putting up their service versus what Amazon and, and Google are, are doing, which is, you know, basically saying, okay, we're going to take our chances. We think we're in the clear, but we're not going to get a license and we're going to go ahead and, and try to use that then as leverage against the, uh, against the music uh, studios, the music recording companies uh, to get a license. It's, it's fairly interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, on an individual level, 
from the point of view of copyright law, effectively, according to the stand taken by the recording industry, uh, what these users are doing individually by putting their music in the cloud is potentially an infringement. It's an unauthorized reproduction, certainly, uh, one that is arguably fair use, but um, but it's interesting to see if the recording uh, industry is going to respond with uh, with potentially going after Amazon and Google or, or even going after uh, end users, something they uh, have done in the past but have backed off of recently. Yep. Uh, has anyone tried Spotify? Are uh, you planning to make this a part of your music diet, Kevin? I certainly would, would give it a chance if I had an invite. Uh, so far, nobody's given me one. Uh, my understanding, it's still uh, very much exclusive as to who gets on it right now. Uh, but uh, um, I, I, I certainly would, wouldn't mind giving it a try. Um, you know, I personally, uh, I, I'm sort of curious uh, how everything's going to work out with the uh, the iCloud and uh, the iTunes in the cloud. Um, that's probably more likely. Well, I personally will end up using, but um, um, yeah, I, I really think uh, some of the articles that we had, uh, you know, had uh, for discussion today, you know, sort of nailed it pretty well in terms of. Um, you know the different routes that these people have taken to uh, license their their service or not, um, and we'll have to see which one prevails. Well, we had a decision on uh, not a music locker site, but uh, one that was used more for video. That was called mm -hmm. Hot File, I believe, um, where uh, there's a federal copyright infringement case pending in Miami. And uh, part of the case has been dismissed and part of it can proceed. The part that's been dismissed is the allegation of direct infringement against Hotfile. Uh, the court didn't buy into the fact that uh, a, a company could be held liable for direct infringement simply because its users are uploading things that uh, are perhaps, you know, Hollywood-esque movies. Um, Let's see, it, it, the judge specifically said that infringement requires a volitional act by the infringer and here there's no search and no pointing people toward what might be infringing materials on the service. On the other hand though, uh, the indirect liability, the Grokster-esque liability, if you will, um, is proceeding and uh, that part of the case will go forward. So it's, it's somewhat informative uh, for these lockering services who are hoping, I believe, to be able to fall into a safe harbor and say that, uh, you know, this is just our users' activity, it's not us, and we're not uh, inducing them to infringe, so we can't be held liable. Uh, Evan, any thoughts on this as it shades the music service arena? Right. I, I'm not so sure it should give the file locker service owners, you know, much uh, solace because it, it really seems self-evident to me that the big risk that they face is one for secondary infringement liability. With Hotfile here, I don't think this decision is all that surprising that they're not liable directly for infringement. And what that is a fancy way of saying is that they are not responsible for actually committing copyright themselves, but uh, copyright infringement themselves, but the question remains open as to whether they would be liable for the copyright infringement that's being committed by those who are, are using it. And ever since June of 2005, when Grokster came out and, you know, up to 
you know, leading up to that point and as much as one was reading into uh, the anticipated decision as focusing on this inducement theory of liability for copyright infringement, there's this extra stuff that goes on uh, on the part of the service provider or the platform provider, whether it be, uh, you know, something like a P2P network or a file sharing service that gives rise to that secondary liability. And it, it appears that in this case with Hotfile and maybe with some of these other file locker services that there is a real effort on the part of the owners of this service to the purveyors of these services to encourage people to do this stuff. There, there, and I don't understand all the details to it, but my, my impression is that there was some kind of reward system here for, uh, you know, having people share these files and people were rewarded if a lot of other people shared them here. And so this, this decision here, if I were um, hot file uh, hot files, whatever it's hot file. Um, you know, I wouldn't think that this was much of a victory because the the more difficult and problematic part of the case is still present, and and that's where the exciting stuff is is going to happen in this case on that question of secondary liability for copyright infringement. Yeah, and Denise, I I actually want to just echo what Evan said. I think that's completely correct. I think you know the the ruling was fairly uh, non-surprising. It was just an early uh, you know uh, motion dismiss uh, where the court found that there was no volitional direct infringement uh, by Hotfile. But the uh, the outstanding issue with respect to secondary liability is a big one, and suggests you know what what we're seeing in the post Grokster environment, which is that that companies can no longer necessarily take a lot of solace in what was known as the Sony Safe Harbor, of course, uh, from the famous uh, VCR uh, case involving Sony versus Universal, uh, where where the court found that uh, a technology with uh, substantial non-infringing use could be could be uh, protected from secondary liability. Here, with with Hotfile, arguably there is substantial non-infringing use as well as infringing use, but Grokster allows liability questions to remain uh, by looking at uh, the extent to which Grokster effectively induced liability. Um, um, and it's important to note that the implications are are broader than just the file lockers like uh, like Hotfile, for example, a uh, sure. new popular service like Dropbox, for example, that a lot of people use for collaborative efforts. Uh, arguably, that's nothing more than a glorified music locker or potential music locker. And services like Dropbox, if there's liability against Hotfile, could also face similar suits. John, do you think that those sorts of services are going to have to implement the kind of measures that YouTube has as far as digital IDs and fingerprinting trying to filter out infringing works. They haven't really, you know, gotten to that point in their development yet. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure. Um, in in part, um, it's it's political to make sure that they're looking like good citizens and 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 good players uh, and working with industry as opposed to potentially against industry. I think it helps uh, bolster their legal position also. Um, but ultimately, you're going to end up seeing uh, more checks on the uh, the the uh, ability of users to use you know Dropbox services and things like that in, in an unadulterated way. And you know, depending on your perspective, that might be a good thing. But I think that's that's going to unequivocally be the case. Right. Evan, one of the questions that comes up a lot regarding the iTunes Match service, which hasn't launched yet, which we'll, uh, we'll see later on this fall, um, is, is whether it's going to be used to finger people who have large libraries of illegally downloaded music that they're now, you know, wanting to access through the iTunes service. Uh, you got interviewed on that point. You want to share your insights with us? Yeah, I talked to our friend 
uh, Chris Forsman, who you know is a friend of our show here on on Twill. He writes for Ars Technica, and he did a great piece about you know examining the question of, and this was actually a very uh, question that came up very early on back in March when we started talking about the um, uh, the uh, all of these 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 different services is would they uh, would the the record labels go after the users. Uh, you know, alleging that they were engaged in piracy using these services, and that that question came to a very fine point uh, with the launch of Apple's iCloud service because of the question of you know this what were they were calling kind of amnesty or or, or whatever. Um, so, a couple of important points on this. First, it would not be in Apple's best interest to cooperate with. Uh, the anti-piracy efforts of the big record labels because there's nothing to be gained um, on Apple's perspective in my view. It would only scare people away from the service thinking, oh, come here and you're just essentially putting your um, misdeeds under a spotlight and we're going to turn you over and sell you down the river. That would not be a good way to get new users and new, new customers of the, the service. The other uh, kind of salient point that I see in this is that the investigatory process that the labels would have to go through to identify potential defendants, alleged infringers, is much more opaque in a siloed kind of system like uh, the the Apple, the the iCloud service, and uh, you know Amazon. Uh, for some reason, I'm having a hard time getting all these names straight today. I'm having some kind of dissonance with that Google Music and all these stuff. You know, there there are these silos. It's not like the open web, or you know, the the internet where there's you know a, a certain protocol that's being used, whether it be BitTorrent or some other P2P uh, uh, protocol for sharing all these things. It's much more siloed, and so you would need the cooperation of the service providers even to identify the alleged infringers, the potential defendants. And so there, for the same reasons, there's an obstacle to the investigatory process. So on balance, I would not be very worried about uh, using one of these services to put me more at risk of becoming a John Doe defendant and ultimately a named defendant in some kind of lawsuit uh, brought by the record labels. Accompanying all of this is the fact that that seems to be the shift that that strategy seems to be moving um, out of the the picture here as the record labels are uh, taking other strategies to deal with piracy rather than suing individuals. So and that that was what what Chris and I talked about in that Ars Technica piece. Right. Yeah. Evan, Go ahead, Kevin. Um, uh, the one thing I I was thinking more about that though is it's not that Apple may not voluntarily cooperate with an investigation, but that simply might be a data silo, a data repository, uh, such that uh, they would be uh, the subject of a subpoena from uh, one of the uh, uh, the record labels, uh, sort of a third-party subpoena target um, uh, in, in one of these, and they, they might simply have to turn over, you know, their username and records. All right, so maybe we're not too concerned about getting hunted down and uh, brought to task for our large illegal music libraries in using iTunes Match. But suppose you have a large library that, and you choose one of these services, a really large library, like uh, Seattle resident Andre Vrino, for example. <laughs> and you, you know, sign up as I did for Spotify this weekend. Oh, by the way, I should interject, Kevin, if you're still looking around for uh, Spotify invites or if anyone listening or watching is the IRC has ridden to our rescue if you're watching live uh, 
log in to irc.twit.tv and uh, some folks have been posting links to where you can get Spotify invitations. Also, if you're following Lewis Gray on Google+, he has, I think, an unlimited in invite link that he's posted there, and uh, that's how I got mine. Uh, anyway, uh, digression aside, we've got Andre Vrino, who's perhaps signed up for Spotify. Actually, I think this was a while ago, so it was one of the other services, and uploaded his huge library uh, to the cloud and found that to his dis surprise and dismay when he did so, he went over his 250 gigabyte data cap on Comcast, triggering a one year long ban from using its services. So poor Andre who shares his uh, web connection with roommates, etc., they are just out in the cold and uh, of course this is all disclosed in the documentation for residential accounts with Comcast, but not disclosed terribly visibly. And if you go to Andre's blog, um, he has a nice little graphic of, uh, you know, when you go through the sign-up process for your Comcast cable service, they really emphasize what you're going to get on the download side and don't emphasize how much you're going to be capped on the upload side. So um, I raised this on This Week in Law because I think, you know, we're starting to get into an area where you're yanking people's internet away from them uh, based on the fine print in their agreements where you might start to see some anger and dismay on the, pa the part of consumer protection organizations. Maybe we'll see some lawsuits about this, you know, it comes down to a terms of service issue. Uh, John, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think this raises a, a broader question, which is uh, to what extent is, is Internet access or broadband Internet access almost a, a human right or a, a digital necessity in, in the information age? Um, you know, to many people, uh, you know, Internet access is their, is their digital lifeline. And so if it is cut off, it's akin to being cut off from, uh, you know, heating services or, or electricity services or, or telephone services back in the old days. Um, and, you know, I don't think the U.S. has taken the stand that the U.N. has taken, which is that unequivocally, you know, Internet access is, is akin to a human right. But depending on the way we conceptualize Internet access, that may may lead us to want to increase protections that prevent um, the cutoff of uh, Internet access without some kind of procedural mechanism, something akin to uh, due process before these rights are taken away from uh, individuals. And that, you know, of course, uh, leads to an issue with respect to, I think we'll be discussing later, which is, you know, procedures for cutting off people's Internet access, not just when they violate terms of service, but uh, if they're infringers, for example. So I think all of that leads to a broader debate about how important is the Internet to functioning in society in the 21st century, and to what extent are we going to put in procedural mechanisms to prevent people from being arbitrarily cut off or unfairly cut off uh, from their internet access. Right. Kevin, what do you think? Are these bandwidth caps? First of all, you know, I just don't know how much sense they make in the era where we're not just downloading and consuming things, but also actively uploading things um, either for our own personal use or mm -hmm. for the professional work we do at home. And I suppose we might get into issues with other limitations on the commercial use of your residential account that could be in the, this documentation. But um, just sticking right now with the bandwidth cap, do you think that kind of thing is going to stand? Do you think uh, we're going to see class actions about this? What do you predict? I 
I, I certainly think that uh, class actions are certainly possible. There are uh, terms of service that have been uh, changed, and uh, if you want to continue with your service, you know, you've, you've got to go with it and uh, um, uh, and uh, you know keep using that particular company. Uh, sometimes you don't have a lot of choice. Sometimes you only have one particular broadband provider in your area. And uh, so you, you may not have a uh, choice to switch, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, personally, uh, I, I think uh, my terms of service with, uh, I think we use um, uh, AT&T Uverse. I think those, that those have recently got uh, data, uh, data caps on there as well. And so that makes me nervous because, you know, I personally have also signed up for, you know, web services like Carbonite and so forth that, you know, do trickle up to the cloud. And, um, uh, you know, we use uh, services like Netflix to uh, stream movies. And uh, if my kids should happen to watch the same Pokemon movie over and over and over again, you know, <laughs> th there, goes, uh, there goes my data cap. Yeah, I, it seems to me like these things are going to have to be brought into connection with reality. Um, Evan, if, if someone sues over this kind of thing, is that a taco suit? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not <laughs> going to disagree with what John said, and I don't think any reasonable person would, and Kevin was echoing this, and I think we're all sensible enough to know how important Internet access is to free society and promoting the ideals of democracy and free speech and all that stuff. You know, that's obvious. You know, we're not, nobody's going to dispute that. But this guy in, he's in Seattle, this guy um, that we're talking about, Andre Vignod. I mean, he's loving this. You know, he's got, he's got Wired writing about him. We're talking about him here on Twill. His picture is real big on the Epicenter blog over on Wired. I mean, just go ahead and insert the appropriate metaphor here. You know, the squeaky, what is it? The squeaky wheel gets the grease or pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered. This guy was using 40 to 50 times the average bandwidth. Uh, you know, compared to the average, uh, you know, broadband consumer. You know, he was uploading all these raw files. You know, his images were in raw, you know, all these fully encoded, uncompressed formats that he was using. I mean, this, the, the larger question here is, what is it, what does it mean to be a responsible citizen when we're using services? If everybody's going to be, you know, using this much of our network's capacity, there's going to be instability. And, you know, I have... Every bit, of, uh, every bit of my support is behind the overall principles of, yes, we need to ensure free access and equal access and uh, unmitigated access to the Internet and to the, the overall network. But, you know, come on. I'm, I don't have much sympathy for this guy here. I'm sorry. I just, I just don't. Okay, well, do you have sympathy for Chris Perillo, who had a back and forth with Comcast Bill on Twitter that he posted up to Google Plus this morning? Somebody's going to have to explain to me what the difference is between a 5010 user as a 10510 user. Um, I don't know if that's what account you're on or how, describes, you know, how much usage you're um, you're actually making of your service. But Chris starts out by asking Comcast. Why is there the same artificial 250 gigabyte cap for a 5010 user, uh, up and down data cap I'm getting uh, from the studio, as there is for a 10510 user? Um, and then Comcast Bill comes back to him and says, residential services all have the same cap. Our business services, on the other hand, do not have any data cap. Chris says, of course, they're also outrageously priced for home office user. You need a users. You need a middle tier. Comcast Bill says. The residential 
broadband customers get 250 gigabytes a month. We notify everyone of any excessive usage, which is less than 1% of the people, to which Chris replies, and how many of those people are on the 105.10 at this point? You kept the cap at the same level and increased the cost and speed. And then Comcast Bill says you download 62,500 songs, download 125 standard definition movies at two gigabytes a movie, and upload 25,000 high-resolution digital photos, to which Chris says, or, you know, use Dropbox with other people to push legitimate video around. Uh, you're peddling spin bill, and I don't swallow it. And I think that gets back to Kevin's point about, you know, his kids watching a couple of Pokemon movies. It really, I don't think, is that outrageously hard to hit one of these bandwidth gaps in this day and age. So that's why, you know, I think there's some tension here that needs to be resolved. And uh, this strikes me as just another way, and I'd love to hear John's take on this, that, you know, we see so many salvos, uh, multi-fronted attack from the entertainment industry on things moving around uh, legitimately or not so legitimately on the web, and this these bandwidth caps just seem to me another you know sort of clandestine uh, salvo in that front. John, do you do you think that's a fair characterization? Yeah, I do. I think that is a fair characterization. Although I think that's in some ways changing historically, or at least in the last few years, where there was extensive bandwidth use. Typically, the industry could uh, associate it more times than not with um, illicit activity, right? So if there was mm -hmm. high bandwidth use, it was someone on BitTorrent or someone engaging in illegal peer-to-peer -peer file sharing that was engaging, that was uh, you know using up or hogging bandwidth. So so by cracking down on bandwidth excess, that that was effectively a proxy for cracking down on, on piracy, at least the way the entertainment industry saw it. But increasingly, um, high bandwidth use is associated with legitimate activity. So, for example, the, you know, the leading user of or the leading source of, of high bandwidth use these days is Netflix. But people who are using Netflix are doing so legitimately. They're paying a, a, a monthly fee and, and they're getting licensed movies. And so I don't think in the future it's going to be as easy for the industry to say, okay, high bandwidth use, that's a proxy for piracy, so we need to crack down on it. Um, that said, though, the, uh, you know, there, there, there is an increasing movement to, to toll you know, um, services like Netflix for basically um, you know, using a good portion of internet bandwidth for their services. And that's really the next, uh, next battleground, which is that you know, the internet is a, is a, you know, it's a huge resource, but in some ways it is a scarce resource. Uh, in the sense that uh, that bandwidth is limited, although it's, it's it feels close to unlimited, it's it is limited, and so anytime you give uh, unlimited you know access to a limited resource, there are going to be economic tensions, and sooner or later there's going to be a push for a model where people are not given unlimited access, and there are going to be tiers of access, um, and of course that leads to issues like net neutrality and other concerns about uh, equity and uh, whether you know you want to create effectively the internet haves and the internet have nots, but there is some rational economic argument to uh, the idea of, uh, of regulating uh, the resource in a way that not everybody gets unlimited access to use all you can want because you don't want situations of, uh, of abusive use. Right, and I haven't caught yesterday's uh, tech news today yet, but Zcam in our IRC points out that a listener called into that show 
to let them know that Comcast was throttling him and warned him he'd be shut off because he was restoring a Carbonite backup. He told him to download slowly over a few months. You know, that yeah. that's going to work really well. <laughs> um, okay, so we've got a couple of other salvos more direct on uh, from the entertainment industry on nefarious or, you know, starting to get into not nefarious at all. Uh, online activity. But before we get into those, I want to thank the first of our sponsors for episode 120 of This Week in Law, and that is Squarespace. Squarespace is the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. It has an easy-to-use UI for creating and managing a website or blog. It's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. And as someone who I think is somewhere in the middle of those two things, uh, it is just a joy to use. I um, have my own blog there, my own site, bagandbaggage.com. And just in the last few weeks, since I've you know completely gotten sucked into Google Plus and really am looking forward to reading John's book once I uh, get off Google Plus long enough to pay attention to an actual printed book uh, because it just sounds amazing. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do with my Squarespace blog is go ahead and add a plus one button to it and do some other tweaks. And I just can't tell you how easy it makes it for someone who's not, you know, super web design, web construction technical to inject a bit of code uh, into the HTML of your site. They actually use the term inject, which I like, sort of clean and uh, hypodermic. And uh, once it's there, it functions just great. And uh, you've added new functionality to your site without any kind of real burden or headache on your part. It also looks great. Hundreds of design templates to choose from and you can customize any of those designs to fit your needs. There are iPhone and iPad apps that make it really seamless to keep track of your site and update it on the go. Online resources and a special support team that give you personal help 24 hours a day and seven days a week. This all-inclusive service includes several modules to build your website. The blog module lets you import and export. Uh, from other services such as WordPress, Press, Blogger, Movable Type, and TypePad. There's a form builder to collect email addresses and other information from site visitors, Flickr photo display, Twitter and other social widgets, and uh, media buttons to connect your website out to all the networks out there, Google Maps and more. There's tracking so you know how many times your site is viewed, who's viewing it, all that good stuff plus built-in SEO, you know, that can be kind of a dirty term, but what they uh, do is just make your site the best possible result for uh, what's being searched for out there in all the right ways. Permission access handling, cloud architecture for speed and site stability. So use it. It's Squarespace. It's great for all your website needs. You can build, host, and update anytime. And get over there at squarespace.com. You can sign right up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and start building your own site. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code squarespace.com slash twill7, T-W-I-L-7, and that will get you exactly 10% off your account for six months. So squarespace.com slash twill7, and we really thank them for their support. All right, so one way that uh, the ISPs have been affirmatively working with the entertainment industry is this new Six Strikes copyright enforcement plan. And I encourage folks who did not listen to last Sunday's twit to uh, tune in for their discussion of that. Leo called it death by a thousand 
um, death by a thousand notices, death by a thousand uh, advisements, whatever it is they're sending to you, um, because they just keep notifying you and notifying you that you've run afoul of some kind of uh, copyright detection until um, finally they put you into copyright re-education. It's, it's all very sort of Big Brother sounding. Uh, Kevin, have you looked at this and uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I certainly have looked at it. Um, I've uh, got a copy right here on my pad of uh, the uh, ways that you can try to get around uh, uh, the, the allegation. Um, I, I, I sort of have a problem from a, a, a first standpoint of the fact that this is a, a system uh, that it's not judicial. Uh, is merely there are allegations that are made of, of copyright infringement and then it puts the onus on the user to come forth with an explanation of either why uh, you know uh, copyright uh, infringement doesn't apply such as fair use or wrong identification um, but there's a, a procedure that involves the user uh, paying a $35 fee uh, for this panel to look at it and um, then there are um, uh, six ways that they can get around it. One is misidentification of account, that they got the wrong guy, uh, that there was unauthorized use of which the subscriber was unaware, uh, but you can only use that one once. Uh, you, you, you can't say each time that you were unaware. You can only use that once. So that's um, your, your open Wi-Fi defense right there? Yeah, you can use that one once, and after that, mm -hmm. uh, you better have it locked down, otherwise they won't, uh, they won't let you use that one again. There's a great um, rundown of all this from Nate Anderson over at Ars Technica, the six ways yeah, That's actually what I'm deal. looking at here. <laughs> yeah, new copyright mitigation measures. So, you know, he sort of takes you through. If you're, and it, by the way, it was death by a thousand alerts. Thank you, mm -hmm. uh, Daddio in the IRC, which uh, I just loved. Um, so if you're get, on the receiving end of these thousand alerts, you need to check out Nate's uh, article for all the various ways you can respond, including um, you're basically paying yet another fee to your ISP to even have this looked at further. Is that what I'm to understand, Kevin? Right. You can get it looked at, and then uh, uh, I think there's this, if, if they believe your, your excuse, I think you get your $35 back. Well, that's kind of them. Uh, John, what do you think of all this? <laughs> uh, very, very troubling. I mean, it, you know, on, on one hand, I think obviously copyright infringement is a serious problem that needs to be addressed. On the other hand, there's some real concerns about the uh, procedural mechanisms, as, as mentioned earlier. Um, you know, there's the question of, of who is adjudicating these cases. They're obviously extrajudicial, so they're taking place in, in some kind of non-court. There are no due process protections. There's the risk of losing your service without having a a real judicial hearing um, and of course you know this has been a system that's organized by the uh, the copyright holders um, and so uh, there's every reason to believe that the their interpretation of copyright law is going to predominate and fortunately that interpretation of copyright law is a very extreme one it's one that 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 regards very little as fair use it regards almost any use of someone's work as per se an act of infringement um, that believes that something as simple as making a, a copy of your own uh, 
you know, music library could potentially be infringing. Um, and so that potentially leads to a lot of people facing a lot of problems with that, losing something that, as I discussed earlier, is the equivalent of a digital lifeline uh, in today's society. Um, and I think this also highlights another danger that we haven't talked about. It's a little out of the, out of the uh, scope of our issues, but it's, I think, a subtext, which is it shows some of the danger in having a concentrated telecommunication services market. Um, the very fact that, uh, that there are only a few major providers now of, of broadband internet access suggests that the, uh, they can easily be corralled together with the uh, recording industry and the uh, motion picture industry and engage in deals like this. It'll be interesting to see if the market is functioning in kind of an unfettered way, whether competitors will evolve, broadband services will evolve and say, listen, we're not part of this uh, cartel. We are not going to subscribe to this uh, process, extrajudicial process of shutting down your internet, and we provide internet service. Uh, if they have a problem, if the recording industry has a problem with how we provide it, we'll go to court, um, or they can take you to court, but we're not going to take independent action outside of the judicial process. I'm not sure we're going to see that because the market is so concentrated. So it, it suggests another uh, concern to, uh, to, to, to be aware of. Evan, we've talked about this before on the show, before it was actually announced and implemented, and we're, we're cautiously hopeful that perhaps in its implementation it would be a nice compromise to the um, three strikes plan that was being bandied about last year where you would actually get kicked off the service. This doesn't kick you off the service, but seems to mire you in an endless sea of red tape and headache. Uh, how do you, what's your take on, on the final version of this um, system. Right. It's yet another example of a situation that just kind of outlines the contours of a larger problem, and that is this problem of reasonably accessible and affordable due process. That seems to be the knee-jerk reaction that we all have when we hear about these things is, oh, this is extrajudicial. This is all, you know, this is all in the back pocket of the content industry. This is the result of, uh, uh, you know, this is a, a negative uh, consequence of a concentrated telecommunications market, as John is pointing out. All those are very valid and fundamental and, and indeed very uh, strong, troubling things. Um, but what, we're, what we have those discussions about those things, and we recognize those at problem, as problems as if to suggest that if there was some kind of reliable and easily accessible and affordable due process mechanism to adjudicate these things, all would be well with the world and we wouldn't worry about this. And we would think, oh, you know, everything's just going to get back into equilibrium and nobody's rights are going to be trampled upon or, or any of that stuff. All, setting aside for a moment, I just wonder how much of a real problem this is. Are, are there really a lot of people who are getting hassled by their ISPs and, uh, oh, I'm looking weird on the video there. I see for a second. For those who are, who are watching, must be something with my ISP. I, I exactly. <laughs> You're answering your own question. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, okay, there. Um, I'm better. Um, so one of the, the problems that's, that's, that's just presented to the, by this, by implication, is you know, where, what kind of forum can we go into and have these kinds of disputes or these problems resolved uh, to, so that we can be ensured due process without the expense and the hassle and the inaccessibility of, of the court system? Is there anything to be learned, you know, on that whole other uh, aspect or component of, of this whole story? That's the rhetorical question that I have. 
Uh, well, I think, you know, can I, I just want to address that. I think Evan brings up a very good point, but I think there have been instances already documented of individuals having their internet access cut off. There's an example of Kathy Paradiso, a grandmother from Pueblo, Colorado, a few years ago, whose internet service provider, Quest, actually terminated or threatened to terminate her account, uh, claiming she'd illegally downloaded multiple movies. It turns out the movies that she had supposedly downloaded were South Park and Zombieland. Now, most grandmothers I know don't are, aren't big fans of either South South Park or Zombieland, and of well, course, she's in Colorado. Uh, well, you never know. That's true. That's true. Maybe, uh, maybe she was uh, she was an alternative thinker. But you know, she pled with them to take her take them off her her do not give internet access uh, list too, and uh, you know, said she's never downloaded a movie. Period. Let alone Zombieland or or South Park. Um, but uh, you know, the the complaint she had fell on deaf ears until she actually took her stories to the press and uh, and and got some traction there. But but for her, her ISP was was her digital life. Line. It was uh, she was an artist that works at home uh, on her computer, um, and her livelihood depended on it. And uh, any kind of interference, uh, even if for a few days, cost her significant amounts of money, and suggests that there are problems potentially um, with uh, the procedures that have been putting in place or being talked about. Yeah, we hear from Reverb Mike in the IRC. He says he gets a menacing note, or she says they get a menacing note each month from. Uh, their ISP, uh, the reason being Netflix. And, and I can uh, definitely see that my own internet usage at home, where I've gone ahead and sprung for business class cable, uh, because I do do this show from home and want it, it really more about reliability than wanting to have, you know, an absence of caps. I have Time Warner as my ISP at home. And I think Time Warner went through this a while back and decided, you know, they tried out some caps and there was such an outcry that um, they decided to back off that. So I, I don't know even if their residential customers are capped at this point. Uh, but, you know, the business customers presumably are not at all. Um, but I think, you know, on any other residential cap kind of scenario between my Pandora use and my Netflix use and Amazon instant video use and just using, you know, we have um, a Mac Mini hooked up to the TV and do a lot of Hulu and other stuff that way, uh, that we would rapidly come up against a 250 gigabyte cap and also... Um, you know, it, it po probably scrutiny about what we were doing with all that activity. And so, you know, I can be readily see getting into this whole death by a thousand alerts scenario and, and not enjoying it at all. So um, I don't think it's a, a necessarily positive development. Uh, I'm glad that people are not getting kicked off. Um, but it's, it's perhaps not as scary um, at least at first blush, as the Felony Streaming and Embedding Act, uh, something that has been pending since May in Congress and uh, has been endorsed in um, hearings by our new copyright register, Maria Palante, who uh, thinks it's a good idea. Uh, John, you want to tell us exactly um, what this act is and uh, if it's as scary as it sounds, and, and I'll preface that for anyone who hasn't heard of it yet. It sounds as though um, if you are embedding or streaming something that is infringing, and it, particularly this is frightening on the embedding front, um, say, for example, you are someone like uh, Eileen, our producer here at Twit, who over in her Google Plus stream, 
uh, posted up this awesome video of Electra Woman and Dyna Girl from the 70s. Just, you know, absolutely made my day to see this blast from the past, uh, Marty Croft production, etc. And I'm sure, there she is. Electro Woman and Dyna Girl. It's, it doesn't, I'm not hearing the audio, but I'll provide that for you. It's part That's of uh, my, my DNA. There she is. Light on those production values. Some of the best video I've seen online in a long time. You can totally see why Eileen would choose to embed this and point to it. But uh, by doing so, you know, this is copyrighted work that she is not licensed to. She is uh, not necessarily commenting on it except to say it's amazing. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I don't think she'd have much of a fair use uh, contention. Uh, just embedding it and on her way. Uh, is she the kind of person who's going to run afoul, and are we, now that we've put it on the show, of uh, this uh, felony streaming and embedding act? What do you think, John? Well, luckily, I think you know a few good uh, copyright attorneys who can uh, defend the lawsuit that may be filed against you on this. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, look, one of the problems is uh, with respect to any use of copyrighted materials. I mean, we live in an age where we all have a digital printing press in our homes that's globally networked, and we're constantly manipulating content. And, and ever since the passage of the 1976 Copyright Act, the default rule in copyright law is the second something's created, it's copyright protected. And increasingly, the default rule has been if you you're using someone's copyrighted work without permission, you potentially face very, very draconian statutory damage penalties of up to $150,000 per willful act. And the uh, the new uh, proposed um, you know felony streaming act um, adds to this kind of trend of, of increasing these draconian penalties. Its intentions may be may be uh, may be right uh, in the sense that it's intended to target uh, only uh, commercial users that are willing willfully engaging in copyright infringement um, of, of, of economically significant works and are doing you know thousands and thousands of dollars of, of damage uh, to those works um, but um, but when you get down to the to the fine print in the uh, in the uh, proposed statute and then you think about the history of judicial interpretation of some of the acts that have come before the felony streaming act where something that may start off as simply um, attaching to you know broad scale pirates of you know people who are fully streaming in perfect HD um, a Hollywood movie um, mm -hmm. you can see that that the enforcement oftentimes then leaks down to individuals who were certainly not originally contemplated and and um, you know we see that with the uh, the commercial um, or rather, the uh, the, uh, the the criminal uh, criminal uh, copyright uh, penalties currently. Uh, for years, they were they were not really enforced. They were meant to really be enforced against broad scale bootleggers. But in recent years, they've gone after bloggers who might put up um, a, a leaked version of uh, of Chinese Democracy by Guns N' Roses, and then find find the feds uh, knocking on their doors and uh, threatening them with uh, a few years in a federal penitentiary. Um, the the problem is the language in these acts is often broadly. Written 
written. The interpretation of economic damage is often broadly interpreted, and uh, and as a result, uh, many uses which could in fact be fair use, or even if they're not fair use, are really uh, in some ways de minimis in terms of the economic, real economic damages um, can can result in people facing uh, a felony, and a felony is nothing to scoff at. I mean, this is that's a serious, serious penalty that can absolutely ruin people's lives, um, and uh, and it seems uh, draconian. Um, so I think it's 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 something to be definitely concerned about. Yeah, it strikes me as you know they're coming out and and the new copyright register coming out and saying you know the purpose of this is to go after the the really big terrible incidents of infringement. But if that's the case, then I'd like to see the statute a lot more narrowly tailored. Evan, any thoughts? I don't, uh, you know, I'm already getting hazed by the IRC today for taking all this big pro-business stance and pro-copyright owner stance and all this stuff, but I'll just go ahead and continue the trend, fine, you know. <laughs> I, I think the statute is pretty narrowly drafted, you know. Uh -huh. it's, it's, um, it has to consist of 10 or more public performances, and I guess there may be some ambiguity as to what that means. Do 10 people have to see it, or does it have to be 10 different videos during, you know, a six-month period, so it's got to be concentrated. Um, of one or more copyrighted work, so that would suggest it's got to be you know more than one video rather than you know ten people looking at it. There's got to be a really high retail value of that. You know, um, the total economic value has to exceed twenty five hundred dollars, and the total fair market value of the licenses would be five thousand dollars. So this is not going to. Uh, I just don't see any set of facts where this is going to encompass the casual YouTube embedder. You know, the the example that you gave with Dyna Girl, um, you know, before just a few minutes ago. I mean, that that doesn't seem like it would fall in here. That's not. Well, I don't no know. Eileen's value. got 32 plus ones and 13 shares on that particular video. Who knows who else has seen it? So, those are at least some evidence of the public performance and redistribution of of that and then we've got Stanford and Son a little clip from that a little further down below so I think you know if it is going to be on a video by video it's not hard to get to 10 uh, it, it gives me pause Kevin what do you think I think I'm just about the only up, uh, linker that this might possibly be applied to it would be um, the person who actually first put it up on YouTube as opposed to the person that later links to it I just don't see it I just don't don't see this particular act applying to the the casual linker but it is for embedding, right? Isn't that what casual linking right. is all about? Right, but I, but I think just reading the wording of the act, I, I just I just see it applying more for uh, the, the the particular person who's doing the actual uploading, who's doing uh, the the actual putting it up there, and uh, perhaps the first embed on their site uh, versus someone who. Uh, is just merely linking to YouTube and you know using their embedding function. Right. Okay. Well, I want to move on and talk about uh, some photography-related stories and some privacy-related stories. But before we get to that, I'd like to thank our second sponsor for this show, those which is uh, presumably pushing us all over our bandwidth caps, and that's Netflix. Netflix streams thousands of TV episodes and movies directly to you instantly, which means it saves you time, money, and hassle. There are several easy ways to instantly access streaming movies and TV shows with Netflix. You can watch Netflix movies and TV shows on your computer, your Mac, your PC, your iPad. The iPad app is really wonderful. 
You can watch on your phone and some Android phones too. Um, you have a gaming console, the Xbox 360, the PS3, or the Nintendo Wii. All of them support Netflix Instant right to your TV. And if you're not a gamer, you can watch Netflix on your TV with an Apple TV box, a Roku box. Lots of DVD players have Netflix built right into them now. They're inexpensive and easy to use. And you can watch movies and TV shows instantly using any of these devices. And you can begin watching a movie or show on one device and then go into another room and you have another Netflix-enabled device in there or you're out on the road and you have your iPad. You can pull it up right there and finish watching. Whichever way you choose to access Netflix, you can watch as many movies and TV shows as you want, anytime you want, and you can cancel at any time. Go to Netflix.com twit and you can try it today for 30 days free. Uh, be sure to use that URL when you sign up, and we thank Netflix for their support of This Week in Law and the Twit Network, and we hope you enjoy watching instantly with Netflix. All right, so let's talk about, um, uh, we were talking about terms of use in terms of ISPs. Let's talk about terms of use in terms of social networks. Uh, I alluded to the fact uh, of the new one on the block, the new big kid on the block, Google+, which um, I am sorry to say is... Um, just sucking me out of all kinds of other fully joyful and more life-enhancing, presumably, uh, activities. Um, and it, uh, it also is uh, causing, you know, you, put, you throw a new social network out there and people are going to start uh, wondering about how its terms of use affect them and the things that they're putting into it. This is really Google's first venture into having people upload to their service, other than YouTube, of course, which has a whole different array of terms of service that uh, are, do not apply at the moment to Google+, and I must say are far more draconian than what I'm seeing in the general terms of use over at Google that do apply to Google+. To, uh, Google so uh, presumably, when this is released to the public, we're going to see Google tweaking and adding things both on the privacy front and the terms of use front. But in the meantime, there's been a lot of talk among photographers about whether Google Plus is a good place for them to post their works. Uh, we mentioned this last week, talked about Scott Bourne noticing the excellent point that, you know, whenever you upload to a service that makes you grant them a non-exclusive license to be able to use your works to move them around on the service and share them with other users and otherwise make their sharing service a sharing service, you're granting them a license. And if it's part of your bread and butter to grant an exclusive license to your clients as a photographer, for example, you can't grant them an exclusive license if you're already granting licenses around to social networks. It just is, you know, cognitive dissonance there. But a lot of people um, wanted to take a look and see, you know, further on the Google terms. Uh, I did over at my site at Bag and Baggage um, an examination of those terms and my thoughts on them. The one thing that I really like about the Google terms of use as they stand now for a social network is there's a nice limitation, a nice statement of purpose of what the user license is intended to cover. Um, and it does limit the use that, uh, that Google plans to make of the things that are licensed to it, to what's necessary to run their service, and they throw in something that's a little bit more problematic and that they, they also throw into the purpose, promotional use without defining that. Um, so it's, it's a nice object lesson in, in how it's good to take a look at these terms uh, and to compare them. Over on Facebook, for example, they took a ton of flack and if you Google something like 
Facebook rights grab. You'll find all the articles from, I forget if it was 08 or 09, when people took a close look at the Facebook terms of service, or they altered, I think, their terms of service and took out um, revocability and, and various things and then had to backtrack. Uh, the Facebook terms are revocable. Uh, the le user license goes away when you take your work out of there or cancel your account, except to the extent that they've been shared with others. So, you know, there are exceptions to that. Um, but uh, the, the Google ones are not, and that's causing some people cons concern and consternation. I think that's somewhat uh, modified or levied by this statement of purpose that we're only going to use the stuff you give us to help us run the service and share it around. So um, I toss this out to you guys. Uh, Kevin, if you want to start, um, what's your overall take on the Google terms from a social networking standpoint? Well, I didn't think they were particularly onerous. I thought uh, they were fairly straightforward and, you know, real similar to what other uh, uh, services would necessarily have to have. I mean, if they're going to put it up on their site, they're going to need a license, uh, a, a non-exclusive license, hopefully, uh, which is what they what they have here, uh, to put it up and and display it. Uh, otherwise, you know that they couldn't have it. And I think uh, Scott Bourne's point about uh, uh, the fact that uh, photographers uh, need an exclusive license to be able to grant. Uh, to their customers, if somebody buys a, a photograph from a, from a professional photographer, they've got a reasonable uh, expectation that they were going to have an exclusive license for it, and it's not something that the uh, photographer is going to himself be sharing or himself be uh, putting up on a, a social sharing site like that because uh, uh, that's sort of the, their expectation. So I, I, I agree uh, that uh, it is a concern, but I don't know what uh, sharing site that Scott Bourne could ever actually use uh, if, if it's a, a photo that, that he's going to potentially be uh, concerned about having to, the ability to grant a social, uh, an exclusive license for. So, um, you know, overall, uh, you know, I liked, uh, you know, Google Plus. I've uh, been playing around with it a little bit. I, I know you're in one of my circles, Denise. Absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, and Evan, I, I, you're not in any of ours yet. Are you? Are you just eschewing social media entirely? Are you? Are you kicking them cold turkey at this point? Um, yes. At this point, I've been having some moral panics over it. So that's yeah. All right. Well, we, can, we can't have uh, panic, moral or otherwise, but the point about these terms is, you know, as I said in my post, I don't think they're necessarily panic worthy. I do think that uh, we might see some adjustments to them as the service actually rolls out of its 10 million user plus beta trial period and into public release. Uh, John, yeah, let me actually, Denise. Yeah, let me add that. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, Google's damned if they do, damned if they don't. I mean, they have right. to put some of these terms in there. Um, it's just required. Otherwise, they're going to face potentially a, a stream of litigation um, down the road, and because of the massive penalties for copyright infringement, they'd be looking at massive amounts of liability. So it's completely understandable. I think what's interesting with these terms of use debates is actually there's a very constructive public dialogue that occurs, um, mm -hmm. where there's almost this uh, quasi negotiation that occurs. It's not, it's not ex ante, it's sort of after the fact, uh, but there's a revision process that almost occurs. It's almost like a collective bargaining 
uh, situation. Um, and so in some ways you can you know the fact that these that people are paying attention to this stuff is a very healthy sign of a uh, of a marketplace and the fact that people call out Google or Facebook in the past and Facebook then will uh, alter their terms uh, suggests that there is a decent amount of back and forth here um, and I think Google may revisit this issue of revocability um, as, as Facebook did and 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 it wouldn't be surprising to see some changes Right. Evan, any thoughts on, on the terms or uh, social well, media terms of use and user licenses in general? I like the point that you made about Google's terms of service in particular about this problem of syndication, which is something that's mm -hmm. very essential to all these things. Um, you know, I'm trying to pull up exactly what you read. The, the terms of service lets Google uh, make... Uh, that the users grant Google a license to make their content available to other companies, organizations, individuals uh, which, with whom Google has relationships for the provision of syndicated services. And so you raise this great, great question. What, is that, what does syndication mean? That term is undefined. Does it mean right. an API call? Does it mean RSS and Atom? So this is something that we could have been discussing five years ago, this question of what it means to be syndicated. And so I think it would be a really interesting process to try to define what that means and if that could really be done in a in a way that is not going to be too constrictive of future technologies that facilitate the the sharing of this content, which is so uh, integral to to what it's all about. So that that would be a really big challenge for a drafts person uh, to try to address. You know precisely what's meant by syndication. We just it's, we just kind of know it when we see it. Right. Yeah, I, it comes down to three ticks for me. One is that point, Evan, defining that term. The other is defining this term promotion, what they're going to do with your stuff for promotional purposes, or, you know, hopefully putting some kind of, if they're, they need to maintain that in there, putting some kind of more fine-grained user controls over, okay, this picture of the sunset that I took, you know, is, is okay if you want to use it to promote the service, but not necessarily this picture of my kid in the bath, you know, or some, something along those lines, let people opt out. Um, and then finally, I think this whole, you know, revocation, how the license goes away, uh, because right now um, it endures as long as the copyrighted work itself does that you um, upload. It's a non-revocable license. Um, I'd like to see them revisit that and see, you know, particularly <laughs> given that we're talking about one of the most um, sophisticated companies on the planet from an engineering standpoint, perhaps there could be a means of extracting out uh, what a user has put in, um, that it's not terribly complicated to, you know, be able to remove their works and revoke their license if they decide to close their account. So, love to see them uh, give some consideration to those points. Uh, so, can we go back to uh, Colorado grandmothers for a moment? Actually, I'm not sure that... Uh, <laughs> One of my favorite subjects. <laughs> I'm not sure that uh, Ramona Fricasu is indeed a grandmother, but she is from Colorado. And she is taking a stand on uh, whether or not she has to fork over to the Department of Justice uh, the keys that would be necessary to decrypt her laptop in litigation that is pending against her. Um, she's invoked the Fifth Amendment and saying, you know what, this is uh, against my right not to incriminate myself and I don't have to give you my passwords. Uh, John, have you looked at this and do you have any thoughts? There's a good piece by uh, Declan McCullough over at CNET. Yeah. 
No, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's look, it's a fascinating issue and cutting edge, and there's really very little precedent on it. Um, you know, there's certain analogies, right, to the idea of, well, if you have a key to your safe, uh, you know, are you supposed to turn that over? And courts there have said yes. On the other hand, is this, is this something different than the, a key to a safe? Um, in, in a sense, um, you know, forcing people to, uh, to effectively give away the password is like giving away the translation to their coded work. And in that sense, uh, it it potentially is asking someone to speak in a way that could incriminate themselves. Um, there are huge pi privacy issues here, um, and um, and obviously, um, as more and more of our lives become documented on our computers, uh, on our cell phones, we are effectively accumulating tons and tons of incriminating evidence. Uh, who among us doesn't have some illegal activity um, on 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 any of their uh, instruments, whether it's a form of copyright infringement, whether Accidental or not, it doesn't really matter. It's a you know strict liability regime or something more serious. Um, I think this is something that potentially implicates all of us, and, and from, far from being just an infringement nation, it could subject us all to being a, a criminalized nation because we all have something. Um, no, no one is perfectly uh, beyond the law and totally obeys the law at all times, and so I think there are tremendous implications in this uh, in this suit. Right. Here, uh, Ms. Frickasu has been accused of a mortgage scam. So that is uh, pending against her. And I guess the problem is, you know, with our life moving completely to these devices, if we're unable to provide evidence or the government is unable to get at evidence um, on these devices simply because it's encrypted, it's completely hamstrung in being able to um, <laughs> prosecute people who, in fact, may be guilty of things like mortgage scams. Uh, Evan, are you with me there? Uh, no, I'm reading the Wikipedia entry for <laughs> fricassee. It's a catch-all term used to describe a stewed dish typically made with poultry. Um, uh, <laughs> my... You know, with this whole issue, it's fascinating to me because it, it seems to be a place where it's like right there where the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment meet, you know, on the mm -hmm. Bill of Rights, this whole question of, you know, whether or not you got to turn over these, these passcodes. And so the question you're asking is like the effectiveness of investigations that can be done if we're going to have all these concern and all these obstacles in the way. My, you know, intrinsic sensibilities go toward a very pro-defendant standpoint in this. And, and I can fall right in line with what Marsha Hoffman says she's with the EFF, she says something very interesting in this piece that Declan McCullough wrote about this, is looking at turning over your passcode or whatever uh, you need to turn over to decrypt this information is a testimonial act in and of itself. So very clearly it falls within the uh, scope of the Fifth Amendment uh, prohibition on self-incrimination. So um, that's just coming from my innate sensibilities, like I say. You know, the, doing the analysis uh, as a court would may be something, you know, m it may have to come to some kind of different conclusion. And that's why these, these very... Um, you know, the word fundamental, I, I know that we all misuse that or overuse that so much, but this is just such a fundamental liberty and privacy issue um, that it makes it very scary if, you know, we're, we're thinking that we might not get the answers to these questions right because they're just so critical to the, the, the uh, privileges, the rights, indeed, uh, that we enjoy in this, in this free society. So I hate to see it impede the uh, efforts of law enforcement, especially when there are important interests at stake. I can always play the, uh, oh, I don't want to, you know, have Al-Qaeda fly an airplane into my office building card. Um, but at the same time, 
I can't let go of that real uh, kind of uh, strong civil civil libertarian civil liberty centric view of all this stuff. Right. Uh, Kevin, in IRC, we've got Taffron wanting to know how a password is not clearly analogous to the combination to a combination lock, and maybe it is. What do you think? I certainly think that's part of it. Uh, uh, in the EFF's brief that they filed, their amicus brief in support of uh, uh, Frikasu, um, uh, they make the good point that uh, the um, it. Giving it out, uh, it's something that they know. It's uh, it, it would be testimonial for her to to actually give the password, um, and it's it certainly could could be uh, similar to that. Um, and I can also see the government's point that they need uh, the ability to uh, prosecute people in in these days of whole disk encryption. Uh, if that's the the way to get around federal charges is to go out and you know buy a copy of uh, uh, Norton or whichever that's that's got uh, full disk encryption and you know boom you're 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 good to go uh, you know that that's certainly a problem right so when the government um, comes to your house with a warrant and and has probable cause for that warrant you're not able to stand there at your door and block them saying I invoke the Fifth Amendment to you coming in my house um, you're gonna find things perhaps here that might incriminate me that's why they're there so, right. um, I mean, that's that's kind of uh, where I come down on this. Although, you know, I, it's very rare for me to take a stance that seems to be counter to uh, what good folks like the EFF have decided um, should transpire. So uh, perhaps I need to take a closer look at my thinking on that one and look at it more carefully. Uh, one thing I'd like us to look at more carefully before we wrap the show is uh, something that was posted to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twill uh, that was characterized as pure twill link bait. And I'd have to agree, um, this is something that Mike Masnick at TechDirt has been uh, fo uh, following and contributing to, I guess is the way to characterize it. Hmm. Um, everybody no oh, yes. doubt saw last week uh, when there were these wonderful uh, kind of cute and campy um, meme-like pictures spreading around the internet of this macaque who had taken a picture of himself, I think it was a him, uh, with a photographer's camera and uh, were published everywhere on the web and they're uh, so cute. There was a whole series of them. So Mike, being Mike, immediately began to think about that, um, go beyond the cuteness, if you will, to who on earth owns the copyright in that photo? It can't be the photographer because the, f the picture was taken by the monkey. And it can't be the monkey because a monkey can't have a copyright. Um, so he did a post on this and uh, showed the pictures, and maybe we can show them as we discuss it too. Um, and then, there we go, <laughs> there's our little friend, the macaque, uh, taking a self-portrait. Uh, but That's then, uh, Mike hears from the people who, you know, the whole point of Mike's post was the funny thing about this, and this is a classic, you know, law student exam type question, so I'm glad we can bring it up for John's benefit. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the thing about these photos is there, there can be no copyright because they were taken by a monkey. <laughs> and yet he, um, without giving any sort of um, 
pause or actually having read his article on that point, apparently, uh, Mike gets a, a polite, not a take now notice, but a brief letter um, from the news agency that purports to hold the rights to these uncopyrightable photos. Uh, asking him to take the photos down from his site. So uh, let's let our law professor chime in on this one. This is great. This could give nightmares to my students. I mean, yeah. it's the perfect <laughs> makings for an exam, right, where all the copyrighted works are created by animals of different sorts. Uh, you know, I mean, there's obviously, a, you know, a fascinating, almost existential issue of authorship here, right? To what extent can a non-human engage in the act of authorship, something we typically attribute to humans, but but often, you know, I mean, then people sell cat paintings or elephant paintings, um, and those right. are seemingly seen to be a, a form of authorship. Um, it goes back to the statute. It even goes back to potentially what the Constitution says on this issue. Um, you know, there there are some arguments that could be made for the uh, for the news agency. Um, I was thinking about this. If they want to get creative, they can go outside of the realm of copyright. So presumably, uh, authorship, if we say, is you know, we take a stringent view, it would be a natural person or or a corporation, uh, neither of which the monkey qualifies for. So presumably, the work isn't copyright protected. But arguably, the news agency could say, well, there's a term of use to the use of our works. And, 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 um, and depending on what they put on their website, that term of use can create a contract that can be governed by state law. It may be preempted under the Copyright Act. It may not. But arguably, they could say that um, under their terms of use, it says you can't use any image on here, whether copyrighted or not, from our, our website. Um, and so they may have a, a contract claim. Uh, that's one creative way they may be able to uh, to get around this. They may also, and I know in this particular case, the um, the monkey actually took the camera um, himself or herself, right, and actually took the photograph. Uh, so there wasn't a claim of joint authorship by the uh, photographer. But let's say the photographer helped put the settings on the camera um, and decided some aspect of the camera, the uh, the particulars. Um, that may be enough, uh, sufficient to create a uh, joint work of authorship between the monkey and the uh, and the human. And therefore, they may have an argument. This is a uh, a copyright protected work uh, in which the uh, the human owns a one-half interest. So that's that's another argument that can be made. But again, this is all very, um, very theoretical. Um, however, once you start getting a, a polite cease and desist letter sent, it could raise the realm of an actual uh, case or controversy that someday may end up in courts um, as, as things go forward. It also has a whole animal rights uh, angle to it, too. So it's fascinating. Right. And Twits, I as Actar in IRC, wants to know who owns the monkey, which may well be a pertinent question here. Yes. Uh, Kevin, any monkey thoughts? Well, we were banding this about the office the other day, trying to see if there was any potential copyright ownership whatsoever, and none of us could think of one. Um, you know, the photographer didn't set this up. He didn't, uh, like, leave the camera out, you know, for the uh, monkey to take. He didn't, uh, you know, otherwise engage in any creative uh, form, uh, you know, with the actual uh, taking of the, the photograph. I mean, he owns the camera, that's for sure. Uh, he owns uh, the digital bits, the, the, you know, the actual file. But in terms of a copyright interest, we just don't don't think don't think he has one. <laughs> Evan, uh, any different spin on this? I'm just glad it's a story uh, about a photo of a macaque that doesn't involve Anthony Weiner. That's all I have to say. Yeah, oh. exactly. <laughs> and and was texted to no one, as far as we know. 
All right, with that uh, quick giving of our resource of the week, uh, which is a wonderful answer to being sent to copyright school by YouTube or an ISP, Pub Public Knowledge held a contest for um, a, a fair use education video to be the counterpoint to uh, the one that YouTube has put up there for everyone to enjoy, and I use that term rather loosely. Uh, and there is a great uh, fair use education video um, advocating for what your fair use rights are and if you are on the wrong end of a DMCA takedown notice, how you might go about exercising your counter notice rights. Um, so I do invite you all to go check a look over at Public Knowledge and uh, look at the Fair Use School video and uh, perhaps it might be useful um, if you are someone like Mike Masnick and have engaged in fair use of something that is arguably copyrightable, uh, if only loosely so, um, maybe you'd like to send them a link to this video and it can help the discussion. Uh, and finally, uh, our tip of the week is to go take a look over at Gizmodo where there's a great post uh, that says, I flunked my social media background check, will you? Uh, it highlights a company called Social Intelligence HR, uh, which I presume uh, you can retain for lots and lots of money to do background checks. Uh, and one of the writers over at Gizmodo went ahead and had it check him, Matt Honan, uh, just to see what would come up. And it's a really interesting article because some things came up that, uh, you know, could be problematic, but I, the overall takeaway that I got from him was there was a lot more out there. He said it helped to have a broad internet footprint that, uh, that never came up in the background check, including a tweet uh, like the following, never occurred uh, in the check, glad I am childless, would not want a socialist black man telling my kids to work hard and not do drugs related. I'm so goddamn high right now, which of course he posted with the highest of irony, but uh, if that were to come back to you in a background check from employment purposes, that might well lose you your job. Um, so it's a great examination of all kinds of nuances of this, um, including the things that these services cannot provide, like an indication of your race or gender, for example, because if you're not hired for reasons like that, that uh, is something that uh, can give rise to a claim for um, hiring discrimination. So it's it's a really fascinating article, and uh, I guess the tip is just to know that these services exist, and also that uh, they may not function in exactly the way either the employer or you uh, would anticipate. So be aware of them. Uh, and with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of This Week in Law. I really appreciate our great panel joining us today. John, it's a pleasure to meet you, another uh, Southern Californian uh, with uh, social media and technology law and IP law uh, interests and passions. Uh, always fun to come across you. Uh, Michael Scott has been on our show before, also from your law, law school. Are you familiar with Michael? Uh, actually, I don't know Michael. Uh, well, no, I do know. I, I, you're talking about my new law school. Yes, yes I just your new changed law from. School. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was yeah. thinking of Chapman. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wanted to thank you for having me on the show. It's a, a real delight and a very fun discussion. Really fun. So, folks, you need to go out and get Infringement Nation. Uh, the Amazon review on that is just amazing. I just want to read a couple of lines. 
uh, to give you the tease for this book. Drawing upon both theory and the author's own experiences in various high-profile copyright infringement suits, Terranian supports his arguments with a rich array of diverse examples crossing various subject matters from the unusual origins of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, the question of numeracy among Amazonian hunter-gatherers, the history of standoffs at papal nunciatures, and the tradition of judicial plagiarism to contemplations on Slash's criminal record, Barbie's retrousse nose, the poisonous tomato, flag burning, music as a form of torture, the smell of rotting film, William Shakespeare as a man of the people, Charles Dickens as a lobbyist, Ashley Wilkes's sexual orientation, Captain Kirk's reincarnation, and Holden Caulfield's maturation. If that doesn't get you to want to read this book, I don't know what well, <laughs> and uh, I certainly, I am certainly looking forward to it, and I really appreciate your insights and contributions today, John. My pleasure. Thank you so much again. All right, and Kevin, it's always good to have you back at our show. Where can folks find you uh, when you're not busy joining us here on Twill? Well, uh, the blog is at cyberlawcentral.com, but I'm probably more often over on Twitter. Um, my username there is cyberlaw. And you're Kevin Thompson on Google+, correct? That would be me. All right. That's where I'm going to be finding you these days. And Evan, of course, blogs at internetcases.com and practices law at Hinshaw and Culbertson in Chicago. Any final thoughts for us today, Evan? No. Thanks for, for having me. It's a great conversation. Kevo, it's always good to talk with you. We're old pals. We go way back. I used to work over at Kevin's firm. And uh, John, great to uh, meet you. Really have enjoyed the conversation, and I am uh, going to go pick up a copy of the book. So thanks. Uh, it's, been, uh, thanks. it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Evan. Great to meet you as well. Right on. Thanks, everyone. Uh, you can tune in next week live at 11. We record 11 PDT, 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. Meantime, send me emails. I'm Denise at twit.tv. Let me know what's going on. I always post up at Facebook and Google Plus and Twitter before the show, so you can hit me on all of those forums if there are specific things on your mind we uh, should be paying attention to or discussing. We love hearing from you. And uh, we'll look forward to that in the next week and see you for next week's episode 121 of This Week in Law. Take care.